Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 213. So glad you could join me. Today's guest, Arthur Russell, is here. He'll be with us in about 10 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry. I know we do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed, leave reviews on iTunes, which is still something I'm focusing on. Um, on the, if you search on iTunes, we're up to like 12, which is much better, but I can't actually search myself, so I've neglected it for years. I'm trying to fix that. So leave a review on iTunes. Um, help us out that way. Get more people listening to poetry, which is always our goal here at the Rattle Foundation. Um, now, our two, we have two news poems for the first time in a while. Uh, we haven't done, we're trying to do a few less just because we're not getting as many submissions. The news isn't as, as big in everyone's minds as it was during the pandemic when we sort of stretched it out. But occasionally we do like to break it out in two. And we have this poem to start with. This was Sunday's poem, um, which is about the ongoing war in Ukraine. And the poet was Stephen Abney. Uh, I, I love the, the formal elements of this poem. Um, it's one of those timeless poems that really just, just works um, over time. And let's take a look at it. I'll read it really quickly because we don't have any audio. But this is Stephen Abney. He says about it, this poem concerns the ongoing war in Ukraine. And the link was to uh, CNN. And I'm not sure if it was intended, so I didn't put the actual link to that. But it was one of those lists of news items. And one of the top stories I noticed was um, a soldier who um, had had his leg amputated in Ukraine was returning to the front and I, I'm not sure if that was his intention. I haven't actually talked to Stephen yet. But, um, but that was one of the main stories that, that maybe inspired this. Uh, this poem concerns the ongoing war in Ukraine, says Stephen. Its message applies to many other conflicts past and present. And I'll just read it for Stephen, who couldn't be here tonight. Uh, Stephen Abney, uh, Night View Base Camp, east of Kiev. There aren't as many stars tonight as once there were before. I've watched a hundred of them fall. I'm certain there were more. There aren't as many soldiers now as once there were before. I've seen a hundred good men die. I'm sure that there were more. And yet the stars keep shining, bright, blazing as a sun. For every one that fades away, a new one has begun. Soldiers, too, are like the stars. I guess they'll always be expendable, replaceable, unto the last draftee. And so that was Night View Base Camp, East of Kiev by Stephen Abney, and really a timeless poem that could apply to so many things throughout human history. Um, so that was Sunday's poem. And then we also, there, I was, really had a tough debate between these two poems, um, and, uh, and I love this one too. This is something that I'm not really uh, that familiar with, uh, about what goes on with the uh, student essay. Uh, for college admission exams. But I guess there's a, um, well, I'll, let, I'll explain what Allison Davis says. And Allison wanted to be here. She's been here twice before, but is a little under the weather right now and couldn't make it. So I'm going to have to uh, share you this without her, unfortunately. But uh, it would have been nice to talk about because this is an interesting subject. I'll put this on the screen too. Um, this is what she says. I'm a high school English teacher, and I've been helping students with college essays for many years. I go to great lengths to de-emphasize the commodification of identity and especially of suffering, and I hope it matters. And uh, the link was to an article about uh, the way that um, college admission, the, the essay, and I remember writing this, you know, 25 years ago when I was applying to colleges. Um, you know, there's a way that you're supposed to um, 
you know, say you've been had this traumatic experience through life and you're getting over it because the hero of every story is somebody who was suffering at one point. And so there's this formulaic nature that all the essays developed and people were even complaining about it as early as the early 80s. And uh, this essay was uh, asking whether or not um, it was worth continuing to do these college admission essays when it's just such a canned type of um, response that they are reading over and over again. And Allison, you know, as someone who helps people out with their student essays, uh, had an interesting take on it. And this is sort of a series of short prose poems uh, by Allison Davis. So give it a listen and uh, enjoy. Hang on one second. Let me get the audio right. There we go. Here, listen to Allison read it. If the point were to tell it straight, not slant. In our first session, I told my tutor how much I used to love to take my siblings to the park when they were little. He said, oh, so you had to help raise them? No, not really. It was just for fun. Climbing trees and picking apricots and playing fetch with the Dalmatians that were always there on Saturday mornings. He said... So you needed to get out of the house to have fun. Tell me more about that. He asked questions that didn't fit my life. So I could write a story that didn't fit my life, but did fit the genre. Everyone embellishes, he said. The struggle is what makes the hero. Then maybe I should write about my parents' divorce? A frown. Oh, God, no, that's been done to death. I wasn't the star of the play, but I was in it. I wasn't the star of the team, but I was on it. I wasn't the president of the club, but I went to all the meetings. I didn't win the competition, but I tried. I'm good at public speaking and applying liquid eyeliner. I rotate my date night underwear, but... I'm not sure if I've ever been in love. My parents still brag that I potty trained myself that I was the first person in my class to learn to read. My favorite thing about school is when it's over. In the hollow of a tree at the far end of the parking lot, I keep a collection of things that have been lost or left behind. A post-it note with a 209 phone number, a brass key, a conch shell charm, a souvenir petty from Yosemite, a lipstick, the wing of a swallowtail butterfly, the promises of my childhood. Things that are more important right now. Planning my spring break trip. Sponsoring a voter registration drive. Working it in and out. Pretending to be vegan to impress a girl. Sleeping in. Sleeping around, photographing treetops, playing D&D, disappearing, losing 20 pounds, gaining 20 pounds, vaping in the bathroom, hiding my eating disorder, solo kayaking the Green River, memorizing the capitals of every country in the world, learning to surf, sneaking out after curfew, raising money for Syrian refugees, walking the dog, dyeing my sister's hair blue, Breaking the cycle of intergenerational trauma, planting succulents and ponytail palms, writing a screenplay, lying about why this is the best I could do, relearning how to dream. They keep telling me to find my passion, my voice, my story, but none of the adults in my life have even done that. So how am I, at 17, 
supposed to. I keep having a dream where I'm ice skating on a pond and a dragon appears and sets a ring of pines ablaze. The flames melt the ice and I fall in. I flail in the water. The fire closes in on me. Unable to save myself, I let my legs go limp and say goodbye. But my skates bump against something in the water. I realize I can touch, that I could have been touching the whole time and walk right out. On the shore, the fire from the dragon keeps me from freezing. And I watch the stars spell out my most intimate questions in the sky. I lay there for a long time, listening. Yeah, and that was uh, Allison Davis again. She's uh, had th- it's her third Poet Respond poem this year, and I just love the way those paragraphs, you know, the, the different voices in there, and especially the last. I especially love the uh, "It wasn't the star of the play, but I was in it. I wasn't the star of the team, but I was on it." That whole run is just wonderful, and then the dream at the end is great too. I just love that poem, and really fascinating to look back at, at what uh, you know young people are going through right now, which is something you know my kids are middle school age, and so I don't have to experience this yet and uh you know it's, it's still a distant memory for me as far as going to colleges so that's interesting um insight into that so thanks for sharing that allison hope you get well soon uh now we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest like i said it's arthur russell uh with at the car wash his uh ronald Chapman prize winning book so we'll explore the car wash and uh, arthur's life and poetry in just a couple minutes so sit tight and i'll be right back with more poetry And we're back. And like I said, today's guest is Arthur Russell. Uh, Arthur comes from Shepherd's Bay, Brooklyn. He works as an attorney and landlord in New Jersey. Uh, he's received writing fellowships from Syracuse University and the Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center. Uh, won Brooklyn Poets Poem of the Year in 2015 and was runner-up for the Allen Ginsberg Poetry Award in 2021. Um, he serves on the board of the Red Wheelbarrow Poets, co-leads their weekly workshop, and co-hosts their monthly readings. And like I said, his chapbook at the Car Wash uh, was the one of the winners of the uh, 2023 Rattle Chapbook Prize. It's the first um, issue to come out, or first book to come out. Uh, came with this fall's issue to all almost 9,000 subscribers. And so many of you out there have already read it, uh, if you haven't seen a copy from Arthur himself. But here he is, um, Arthur Russell. Hey, Arthur, how you doing? Hi, Tim. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. You know, the first time we talked, I don't know if, how well you remember this, but I called you. I remember it very well. <laughs> yeah, it's unusual. I mean, we don't get many stories about the time I called a winner anymore because nobody answers their phones for strange numbers. But you, I called you, and it was a landline, I think. Um, no, no. Oh, was, was your cell phone? I was coming home from a visit to a client's office and I was passing under some electrical wires when you <laughs> called. And the first I've told this story to 20 people uh-huh. because the first time you called, I just said, I, I'm sorry, sir, I, I, I can't hear you. And you said, OK, I'll call you back. And you called back and it was like, all I heard was, this is a magazine. And I said, 
I, I was about to say, I don't want to buy any magazine. <laughs> I think you did say that. But I too, I was, uh, you know, you were in the car and I was uh, at the NFT NYC conference in Manhattan. And so I tried to find the quietest area to make these phone calls because I call people the afternoon before we announce the winners um, at, so I can get your photo and things like that. And, uh, and so I was trying to find the quietest area in this tech conference that was full of like, you know, DJs and, and like people hyping things, talking and all sorts of stuff. I couldn't find a quiet place there. The only like in the cafeteria, they had music. I went outside and it was like downtown Manhattan with like buses and cars. And then you so we called like three times before we figured out that you're the winner of the prize. So it's really All I can fun. tell you is when, when I finally got, you go out, finally got through to me, I said, I'm really glad I didn't tell that guy that I don't want this magazine. So. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And I too, I mean, I loved uh, interacting with you the whole time. We've done a lot of uh, back and forth over email, um, but we also uh, didn't talk at all except for that on the phone. But I love this photo too. Let me show you the cover photo or the, the author photo. Um, uh, that is just such a great photo that you went out and took that day. Uh, that's by Barbara O'Dare. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how, uh, where that photo, what that photo was like taking it? Well, I I needed a photo, and Frank Rubino is one of the co-hosts of our workshop that we do, and so I asked Frank if uh, Barbara, who I knew takes pictures, could do a picture of me. So I went over to her out to their house in Montclair, and took about fifty pictures. And um, I think I I think that was the favorite all around. <laughs> and the, the odd thing is that hand on the on the shirt thing was something that I was mimicking from my college graduation picture that I had taken forty years before, which also it just showed my hand on the same side of my chest rather than across my mm -hmm. chest. So uh, I liked it. Yeah, so. well, I have to say, I mean, it's the best author photo I've seen in here. So kudos to Barbara O'Dare for capturing that moment. That's really nice. Um, do you want to start out? Let's read a poem. I think the uh, opening poem is the perfect way to go for this book. It's such a narrative uh, story that, that follows chronologically pretty much uh, your life at the car wash. Let's, let's read the car wash first. Great. The car wash. At the car wash at dawn... The darkness of the plant was permissive. Sometimes it had a pilot flickering in the hull of a heater, or the canvas towel bin glowed in the pallid gray of the skylight. Every morning for five years, 1,800 mornings. We might hear an air leak or water drip while walking back with our coffee cups gimbaled between index and thumb things we'd need to fix before we opened. And then, at the electric panel, the knife switch took a palm to throw. The sequence of circuit breakers, compressors, and fluorescents coming on satisfied the order etched where habit met identity. Alan went to hang his army field coat, and I walked the wash tunnel, collecting license plates and other parts from yesterday. Charmed by the rust that bloomed overnight on the polished steel plate flooring and washed away each morning. Alan came to grease the bearings. The white grease pushed the greasy water out. And raising the garage doors to put out the signs, I saw the lights progress, the men arriving. Checked the trash cans, got money for the register 
hung a card of pine trees in the cashier booth, the tape loop playing in the empty customer walkway, selling hot wax to no one. And then we opened, and the cars came, and the people nodded to us and stood with crossed arms, watching the steam guns, the vacuum wands, the mats flung sideways to the mat rack for a rinse. And even as we watched, our lives peeled back and shed one layer, exposing the new day's delicate skin. Yeah, and that was uh, at the or the car wash, uh, the opening poem to at the car wash. And there's a photo. There are a couple photos in this of um, the car wash itself. This is the actual Hollywood car wash, auto laundry. Um, <laughs> back from I don't know when this picture. What do you remember? The year this early picture was taken. I, I can only tell you um, that the cars tell me it was in the early fifties. Yeah. So- uh, there's a cut. There's a 1940s car on the right and a slightly new one on the left. But my favorite is the guy with his hands on his hips because that guy was there the whole time <laughs> I worked there as well. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so this is such a um, and this is at the car wash, of course, which uh, all subscribers have a copy of. Let me just fix this really quick. Um, and uh, so it's such a such a great subject matter for poetry i think to have you know a a profession uh, a place that people are sort of slightly familiar with but have no behind the scenes sort of feel of it there's so much substance to be writing about um and then you know as the story unfolds it becomes so much about your relationship with your father and and the whole family dynamics and a lot of different things that come into play Uh, but when did you know that you wanted to write a book about this this time and uh, how did you know that it, it would be poetry and not like a memoir or something like that you know, I really don't know how to tell you the answer to that. It's, I think of it more in terms of being um, something that really made a deep impression on me. You know, I had achieved escape velocity from my family back when I was 19. I quit college, moved into the city, wanted to become an actor, moved out to California. And then I sort of fell back into the family orbit, came back to college. And when I did that, I really got conscripted into working at the car wash while I was going to college. Every Friday, I'd drive down from Bronxville, work the whole day. That was Alan's day off, so I needed to be there. And the things I saw and learned on that sort of return visit to the family business, they just they just marked me really deeply. So it didn't matter how much time went by. And you'll see later, Tim, as I told you, I wrote a poem this week about the car wash because it really never stops supplying me with conflicts and resolutions. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the earliest poem in this book um, is Whales Off Manhattan Beach. <clears throat> Breaching in Winter is what it used to be called. And that was a poem I wrote not long after my dad died. And I think since then, I've just continued writing poems about the car wash. And then I started to think, well, but the guys I knew at the car wash, the people I knew at the car wash and things that aren't in this collection, you know, the people who worked next door to the car wash and across the street from the car wash and all of them had fathers and sons as well. And it started to really provide a really rich basis for everything I did. The most recent poem is this week. The earliest one is eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, let's read another poem from the book. I think next up is how to replace a toilet. Yeah, this gets us right into the the thick of it. 
of the relationship with my dad. How to replace a toilet. First, have a father, one who owns a car wash where he employs poor black men, preferably those who've come north in the great migration, but any poor black men will do, as long as they have historical disadvantages that have translated into self-destructive behavior that makes them targets for disdain and predatory labor practices. Grow up at his kitchen table. Hear his precise mimicry of their accents, mockery of their foibles, his weirdly intimate knowledge of their weaknesses and hopes, bordering on and even bleeding over into affection that never reaches all the way to respect. Go to work for your father. Start off drying the cars at the exit end and gradually learn all the jobs while inhaling his attitudes towards the men who work beside you, although you made differently, or is it just youth and naive sympathy? Appreciate their struggle. See them come to work still drunk from the night before while you spent your summers at summer camp learning to smoke pot behind the bunkhouse. Get paid the same dollar twenty-five an hour the men get with the difference that they are living on it and you are saving up to buy a Sony stereo music system to play Carol King's tapestry. Learn how to send men home with no work on slow days, how to absorb their abuse, their special hatred of your father, blooming when drunk, transferred to you. How to resist their requests for new uniforms to replace the worn ones that you send to the local dry cleaner for patching. Lean over their shoulders as they vacuum the cars to stop them from sucking up the change in the ashtrays. Follow them around the corner to stop them from buying beer on their 45-minute lunch for which your father charges them an hour. One Saturday at 7 a.m. when Jerry Howard uses his one call from jail to call your father, go to the Brooklyn Men's House of Detention on Bowroom Place to bail him out after he got arrested during a fight with his wife because Jerry is your best entrance driver. And it's Saturday, two days after a messy snow, and you may wash a thousand cars. Another time, find Frederick Hyde hiding inside his locker after closing, hoping to burglarize the place if you lock him in. And listen, always listen, even when you argue against him to your father's embattled justifications for stealing from the men's tip box, for withholding withholding taxes from men he pays off the books, and for giving them alarm clocks for Christmas, but only if they come to work that day. So you're ready. One morning, when someone tells you that the men's toilet is broken, and you go into that cubicle to see that it's not the flush valve or the toilet seat, but the commode itself, the vitreous bowl that is cracked with an obvious fissure from base to rim, where someone has jammed a flask-sized liquor bottle upside down in the, in the drain, and evidently stepped on the base of it, hoping that the bottle, not the commode, would break apart and flush away so that the bottle would not be found in the trash and raise suspicions that he'd been drinking on the job? 
Now go to your father, where he sits behind the gray steel desk making tea, and tell him what happened, and wait while he squeezes the tea bag against the spoon and swings it deftly by the string into the waste paper basket before he looks up at you over his half moon reading glasses and says, well, fix it, Sonny. Admit you don't know how to change a toilet. Watch your father take a stubby pencil from his back pocket and draw a schematic diagram of a toilet on a writing tablet. Listen to him explain with the same patience and easygoing charm he used when he talked to your teachers on Parents' Day. The two bolts, the wax ring, the pipe wrenches, the Teflon tape. Then make up a list of parts for you and send you in his Lincoln to Davis and Washaw to get what you'll need. Then call you back at the door to remind you to put a board across the toilet before you go or they'll use it while you're gone and you'll have to clean out that shit by hand. And that was uh, How to Replace a Toilet. Again, we're looking at poems from Arthur Russell's At the Car Wash, which came with all subscribers uh, to the uh, with the fall issue of Rattle. Um, and Arthur, that, that really gets to the heart of the book, uh, which is your relationship with your father, which is a complicated one. Um, how much would you say, you know, poetry has been a, a way of healing that relationship and coming to terms with it? Because there, obviously there's, there's some things that, that are less than desirable traits, uh, to, to, put the, <laughs> to put it fairly and say the least, maybe. But then there's a love, too, and an affection. And, that, and the, the schism between those two is always a difficult thing to reconcile. Was the process of writing a process of healing? in that regard into figuring out how you actually felt about him? No. <laughs> I, 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 I can't say that. I mean, the healing goes on. And, and, and by the way, you know, we had a great relationship. At the end of my tenure as his assistant manager, conscripted to work for him, and he sold the car wash, and I went to law school, our relationship continued to um, develop. And a lot of a lot of, I would say him living to be 93 years old and me getting to be around him in those last 10 years of his life when he had Parkinson's and slowed down a lot and never changed his attitudes, but they weren't the issue. And I would also say, writing about the car wash, you know, so little of that poem is really about my father. It's more about the way he taught me to see the world. You know, and I had quarrels with that and still have quarrels with that. But my quarrels with him, um, I, no, I don't. Yeah. I don't. Did, did you talk about uh, these topics? Uh, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so what do you think he would have thought if he had a chance to read this book? I've thought about it many times. You know, I said, you know, like I thought even wrote a poem once like, Dad, I'm capitalizing on your bad character and I'm telling <laughs> the whole world about it. And he I think sometimes I say he would say. Well, I made what I made from the car wash, Sonny. Now you go make what you can make from the car wash. Oh, that's I think, great. <laughs> I think he might say that. And other times I, I think he would say that's just not fair. Hmm. So, so what is it do you think that drove you to write about this topic and it still does, you know, eight years ago versus this week? Uh, what is it that brings you back to that place in time so frequently? 
It was, it was, you know, like childhood had its own traumas, I suppose, and, and adolescence has its own traumas. And leaving home and going to become an actor or a writer, those were all parts of my, I wouldn't call them infantile, but my, my youthful ambitions to make myself a way in the world that didn't involve my family. So it was my escape. And when I fell back into his orbit, that was shocking. And what I saw was shocking. And I was dealing with the trauma of losing my childhood ambition. So everything you see in these poems was emblazoned in, in my memory because they were shocking things. They were hard to accept. I was angry a lot of the times. I was, uh, as you'll see in the next poem, a bit of a pretentious prick. And, uh, you know, I... I just I just think that's why it's like that was the moment when I really grew up. Hmm. That was the moment when I accepted what he would call reality. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Great way to put it, too. And, and there, there are moments like that for everybody where you, you cross that threshold and realize the world isn't exactly what you thought it was. Yeah. Uh, let's read that next poem. All right. Well, this one's called Plant Life. You know, I haven't done a lot of intros for these poems, but... I chose plant life because we called it the we called the car wash the plant, but also because I believe, although I can't prove it etymologically, that the word plant, as it relates to a manufacturing facility, is derived from plantation. Hmm. And and I always believed that, as I said in the first poem or the toilet poem, that the men the men that he took advantage of um, were men who came from the south. So anyway. Here's plant life. There were men who worked for him for decades, for bupkis, less withholding, bupkis being the Yiddish word for nothing. <laughs> there were men who worked for him for decades, for bupkis, less withholding, right there at the corner of Church Avenue and Coney Island Avenue, as seen in photos from the era with cars from the era and men in hats of the era. Men who lived in Bushwick and Crown Heights and South Williamsburg. Men who knew me as his son. Whom I managed in my 20s. Who had their wages paid daily or weekly on Sunday. One man at a time. Coming into his office. Having a few words of thanks from him. Standing while he sat behind the gray desk. Opening the two small envelopes. One containing net pay and the other smaller one, that man's share of what was left from the tip box after my father took most of the tips for himself. Not, he explained, to make himself richer, but to keep the men poor and needing to return to work the next day. The envelopes were prepared by my mother on Saturday she wrote the man's name in her Lincoln High School script in felt-tip pen because she had to fight every day to keep hold of her identity and her sense of fun, and green was her color. There was an oversized spreadsheet where she showed her calculations. The men all knew her and said hello, and she asked about the women of the ones who had women, though many of our men were city-living men who stayed behind rooming house doors and dropped off laundry. 
She held a ruler under each man's line so they could see across the line and sign in the last column. It had solemnity. The sudden quiet of bringing men into their office, Usher Schneider, the manager, smoking a Benson and Hedges, watched. Some of the men, Eddie Ellis was one, after they'd changed out of their green oak coveralls with yellow embroidered lettering into street clothes, drew chunky black-rimmed reading glasses out, partially to see and partially to participate in that solemnity. Harry Obey showed up in the big, white, double-breasted overcoat he wore in winter with deeply notched lapels. The office was up a narrow flight of steel steps. The men lined up at the foot of the stairs and came up one at a time. My father gave the men either an alarm clock or a transistor radio for Christmas in alternating years. I was there. He wanted us to learn about life from his car wash. So we counted his money and dried his cars. Even my sister worked there as a cashier for maybe two days before my mother shut that down. This is why I tell the story of taking the stitches out of Pete Watson's scalp with a single-edged razor and a surgical clamp at the men's lunch table so Pete wouldn't miss an afternoon at work. Arthur, Sonny, Pete needs his stitches out. Go out to the men's lunch table and take Pete's stitches out. At the men's lunch table, where I sometimes caught flies in my hand for Alan to take home for his pet snake, for his son's snake, Pete Watson's scalp with its dandruff and scabs and the minor popped release as I lifted the surgical knots of his stitches free of the amber crust around the wound, the doctor-shaved zone around the chair leg wound, and the lanolin sniff of his scalp, and the new stubble coming in, and the nearness of his warm head. This is what my father wanted me to know. This very week, as I was getting ready to write this poem, my brother told me of the time he stood with our father at the men's lunch table, where Clayton Parker sat on one of the red diner stools, drunk out of his mind, bent over in his reddish-brown woolen coat, defeated by alcohol, but drawn to work by a force as strong as the body he nightly, partly self-embalmed. And how my father guided my brother's hand to Clayton Parker's horizontal back and told my brother to rest it there and instructed him to feel the way the drunk man's skin twitched from beneath the depths of his stupor through his coat, though you couldn't see it. And then he asked my brother if he felt it. And that was Plant Life uh, from At the Car Wash by Arthur Russell. And... Uh, uh, Everyone on the, the chat is already talking about it, but the thing, uh, the thing that it's just great storytelling and what brings it to life are the details. Uh, you know, um, 
And uh, where was it? Uh, Carlton Johnson says, uh, Arthur, how do you tell life so honestly and so vividly? I think the honesty is a separate question. So let's talk about the vividly, though. How do you remember so many details? Is it in the course of writing these poems that they come back to you? Or, or do you, have you carried around with them in that detail that long? Or, or are you good at making things up? How do you, how do you get <laughs> such a rich environment? Because that's really what, what makes the storytelling work so well, is how vivid the, the stories are. You know... I think it's it's the, these things they just happen to me, and I and when I when called upon when when I'm writing a poem and I have something I want to say, I they come to me. They're there. They're available. They're always available. If I talk to my brother now, my brother's read this book. He knows everything that happened in it too. My sister knows everything that well a little bit less than than we do because she was shielded from it. All I can say is, you know, other people have other defining moments in their lives, and I do too. But I'll tell you a little bit of something different than that, which is this. I'm not that good with people, but I'm really good with things. Mm -hmm. And for me, everything that is emotionally significant to me resides in the little objects that I encountered the places I was, the, the the specific thing I was doing. And I think I think that's the way it is for a lot of people. What's important resides in your body and it waits till you need it or you release it. And for me, being a little bit more of an introvert or some other version of doesn't get along well with other people, <laughs> it's things, you know? So like today, the thing I'll remember from this is how I moved the table over so that I would have this behind me when I spoke to you. Mm -hmm. it, that's it. It's just in the things. Well, that's really interesting. Uh, how much, so this is a follow-up question. Uh, Nate Jacob asked, but this is what I was going to ask too. And it ties that um, honesty with the vivid detail too. But how beholden to historical veracity are you? That's how Nate Jacob puts it. But do you feel like you have to get every detail right or you can't share it? Or do you feel free to, to make things up to fit what might have been? neither of those two things it, um i i remember what i remember and when it serves me it serves me well um but I, from time to time in these poems i have substituted in something else or someone else for example it wasn't frederick hyde who hid in his locker until after we left so he could burglarize the place but i don't remember that guy's name oh yeah so, <laughs> I made I stole someone else's name, also a car wash name, but that's how it is. You know, you just you patch it together. You know, I know that. But a lot of these and I would a lot. These are these are the guys I work with, you know, and you saw uh, Prince McMichael and you saw Freddie Rogers and you see Usher Schneider and you see Alan. And, you know, th these people. I, I think they made a tremendous impression on me as people. And, and and I don't know. I never have known if they made as deep an impression on my father hmm. as people. Yeah. But but he was a genius at reading people. Hmm. Not a genius at appreciating. Yeah, that's a really interesting distinction. Um, and and so for the other side of that though, how. Uh... How do you deal with the honesty of this? Is it something, are you just an outgoing type person who tells the truth no matter what and doesn't mind? Um, you know, because you, you know, you don't come off so great in your own words in some of these uh, poems. So how do you, uh, how do you, how do you approach honesty as a poet? 
I really don't know what to say. I um, I, I write what I write, and and I and I, you know, tell it what you know. You just have to tell it all. I mean that that's really you really want to, you know. Sometimes you want to grandize yourself. Sometimes you want to grandize someone else. Sometimes you only want to memorialize a terrible moment in your life. Sometimes you want to just call things back for nostalgia's sake. But whatever it is, you know, you you want it to be it. You don't want it to be some fabrication. Although I have fabricated things. <laughs> I, have, I have fabricated many things. <laughs> well, uh, let's see. Let's hear another poem, and then we'll uh, we'll talk a little more. And it's a good time to say, too, there are uh, lots of people watching. Uh, please do click the like button. I got it. We got uh, 65 people watching on YouTube alone. Only 14 likes. Hit the like button a little more so it pops up randomly for people who aren't expecting poetry on their little sidebar. That would be very helpful right now. If you're watching somewhere else, you can click on something else, too. So please do. But let's hear the next poem, Arthur. Sure. It's called Burning Garbage. <clears throat> um, and, and special thanks to Copper Nickel for taking this poem so four or five years ago. It really made a difference in my life, and I'm still grateful to them. Burning Garbage. My father considered it a kind of birthright to burn garbage, if he did it skillfully. And burning garbage fit his basic rule of business. At the end of the day, we must go home with all the money. That was Brooklyn, washing cars for the summer. And at 26, or precisely whatever age I was, and my dad at 66, we were strong. I had another year of my creative writing fellowship left at Syracuse and was looking forward to the spring of 84 for a free write. Fear of falling back into my father's orbit made me prickly, but I was at the height of a certain set of abilities. I could count money, fix machines, wire appliances, stand in the street with a damp towel on my shoulder, supervise men, hand out tickets, vacuum cars, steam mats, scrub white walls, dry bumpers, wipe windows, change motors, reach between the dripping brushes in the path of cars on the conveyor line and collect fallen license plates. Or catch up and jump into a moving car that slipped into gear and was bouncing down the track and jam my foot on the brakes. I could go up on the roof, on a summer day with Prince McMichael, smoke cigarettes and slosh tar with a spent mop on the roof seams, listen to him talk in disrespectful terms about the women he'd known, or take the stitches out of Pete Watson's head with a tweezer and razor blade, or so that he wouldn't have to take time off to go to the doctor. Or I could follow Sam Tyler when he left his post and ambled toward the deli to stop him from buying beer. And... I could burn garbage smokelessly in the yard behind our building. We burned garbage in a 55-gallon barrel that John Casey prepared by removing the top with a barrel-sized can opener and hammering the jagged edges flat. He stove holes in the barrel sides with a pickaxe and set it on a pair of I-beams with a milk crate inside. One of those barrels would last about a year before the steel collapsed and, like foil, disintegrating to rust in the fire and the rain. Casey 
was a big-boned, white-haired, rosy-cheeked, mostly toothless Irishman of the old school. And another time, I'll tell you how he wasted his astonishing big-boned youth, lost his wife, and nearly died of alcohol in that self-same car wash yard. For now, I'll say, he collected the garbage from the trash cans with a hand truck, newspapers mostly, coffee cups, whatever, wet it down with gasoline and lit it. On a good day, with a good fire, the garbage burned so hot and fast the people whose houses backed up to the car wash would see no smoke. The flames would seem no more than the heat waves surrounding Omar Sharif as he approached from a great distance in Lawrence of Arabia. But Casey didn't sort the garbage properly. He'd dump it into his barrel, even if someone's old car mats were in the mix. And the flames responded with a brilliant green and deeply photogenic resinous yellow color and thick, black, nauseous smoke, the kind the world would see in news reports from Haiti. When my father saw the smoke from his office window, he sent me out to fix up Casey's work. I was good at fire tending, at mats, on vacuum, steam gun, window spray, side window, back window, checkout, cashier and driver. And I was happy in that little corner of the yard, feeding customer tickets, newspapers, lunch bags and magazines to the flames staring down into the barrel, feeling the heat on my face, the hairs on my arms crinkle, smelling them shrivel, jabbing at the fire from above or stirring it through a pickaxe hole with a length of rebar for a poker. I studied how the smoke would run the length of tiny corrugations in smoldering pieces of cardboard like little chimneys within the conflagration, or how moisture sweated out of the pages from the glossy magazines, or how quickly the fire would accept new material. To keep it hot, I squirted gasoline from a ketchup bottle, and the flames would scale the stream of gasoline and try to enter the bottle. I stared down into those fires in summer and winter whenever time permitted me the luxury of doing Casey's job. And I felt in my little garbage fire all the contentment that other men feel at their crackling campfires a dozen miles from the nearest hiking trail in the foothills of the Bitterroot Mountains. Because the Bitterroot Mountains are someone else's mountains, someone else's car wash, and this was mine. My father and I were standing in the yard watching the garbage fire one summer afternoon when he told me he was thinking of selling the car wash. He'd spent 40 years on that corner, and he knew my future lay elsewhere. He was going to turn his attention to finding a buyer. His voice had a tone less certain, not diminished, but gentler, that I wouldn't hear again until his final days. A voice like you might overhear between men in a mostly empty bar with a ball game on the screen above the liquor bottles. And the kind of friend a guy would be came sideways from his comments on the picture. 
Our arms were crossed on our chests, and our legs were planted wide apart because this is the way we stood. There was a damp towel over my shoulder because there was always a damp towel over my shoulder. And a car, I think a black Lincoln, pulled up to the entrance, and I watched Sam Tyler give the man a ticket. I said, I could finish my classwork and come down and help you in January. And just like that, on the strength of nothing more than the intimacy in his voice, I had agreed to give up my utterly free semester to come down from Syracuse and wash cars with him. I did it without him ever asking because I thought he had. Yeah, and that was... Uh... Burning garbage. Yeah, burning garbage from uh, at the car wash. I like to show it on the screen. Uh, that was Arthur uh, Russell's new chapbook, just out uh, with the uh, current issue of Rattle. And if anybody has any questions for Arthur, please do pass them along on uh, YouTube chat or on Facebook comments. I'm watching both. Uh, and that's a good poem uh, to talk about a little transition into uh, your life outside of poetry and your, in your journey into this book. Because you, you know, where we left you off, you were, you know, focused on creative writing, and then you became an attorney. Uh, so how did that take place? And how much poetry did you get into your life while you were doing that work? Um, you ask questions that don't line up with answers right away, Tim. Um, I, I, you know, I, I went to Syracuse, so I was kind of... Um, a slave to my father's car wash from the time I came back from California. I worked for him for about 200 days in a row before I started college. Then I worked for him every Friday while Alan was off. Then I finished college. I worked for him the summers between semesters and so forth. And then I came and worked for him full time till I waited for my Syracuse fellowship. So then I was gone for a year and a half and you just heard about that. And then I came back and I stayed there till he sold the place and he sold the place. And I went to law school and law school was not a great place for writing poetry or short stories. I had mostly been a short story writer up at Syracuse. And, um, so, you know, that began a long different desert that I was in between the time I went to law school in 86 and, I never stopped writing, but I, I seem to have had a reawakening to write with purpose all, a lot of years later, 2015 or so. Mm. And was there anything that happened that drew you back? Uh, or was it, you know, what was it? There's some kind of um, sense of purpose <laughs> that draws us to, to write, I'm kind of curious about. You know, I, I really don't know the answer to that. And so, like, people ask me, you know, when did you get involved with Brooklyn Poets? And I say, I don't remember. And they say, when did you get involved with the Red Wheelbarrow Poets? And I, I don't remember. I just don't remember. It just, <laughs> I just know it happened around 2015. Maybe things let up at work or maybe my 
my daughter graduated from high school and went to college that year or something else. But I'd been writing. I always had journals. I wrote lyrics to songs. I wrote new lyrics to old songs. Like <laughs> Charlie Parker has a, a, a couple of songs that I wrote lyrics to. One of them was called Confirmation. And I played guitar and I would play Confirmation on the guitar and sing my lyrics to it. And I would play uh, Donna Lee which is one of his fastest tunes. And I had these lyrics that went some like, 38 years ago when I was young and I was bouncing around before I finished high school, I took trumpet lessons Tuesday after school. It felt so cool to play the or something by Herb Albert. <laughs> that my little brother had a different sort of inspiration. He was playing tunes Thelonious Monk had written in the 40s, like something like that. Anyway, <laughs> so I would just write lyrics to other people's songs and write my own songs. But... Um, like around 2015, I just started writing with a little more purpose and get involved with other people again. And mm -hmm. that was the thing. And why did it end up being poetry? If you had all these different avenues for writing? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love you, Tim. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for the test. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right. So, so tell us about like your, you know, because I think it's interesting to come across somebody who wasn't really serious about poetry, but other writing. And then, you know, just about, you know, eight years ago, I guess. Oh, uh, no, no, no. Don't get me wrong. My first experience with poetry <laughs> was in my junior year in high school when Linda Arkin was teaching this Shakespeare class. And I learned about the sonnets and I wrote sonnets and I wrote sonnets to my prospective girlfriends. And uh, no, I, I that and songwriting were key to me. And I think short story writing came. Um, well, I tried to write a novel when I was 19 and then I went to college and they said, oh, short stories are what you should be writing. And so I didn't. I don't know the answer to your question, Tim. I really don't. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, though. Uh, let's. Uh, there's a question from Penelope Moffat. Uh, she says, I worked for an attorney for a long time. He tended to have tunnel vision focused on his cases. Is that true for you, uh, Arthur? And does that help or hurt the writing of poems? Um, no, I don't have tunnel vision. Um, I have a good ability to focus when I get involved, and that's the same. And I would tell you this that's really interesting. I write my poetry at a desk alone. I have, I'm have i a sole practitioner, so I have no employees. Mm -hmm. So my practice and my writing practice are pretty much the same. I sit in front of a computer, and I write stuff. And um, it's a little easier to write legal stuff after 35 years, but it never gets easier to write poetry. That's mm -hmm. the difference. Ah, oh, that's interesting. Interesting distinction. And what do they have in common? I mean, you know, there's a sort of a poetry to legalese in a weird way. And that, you know, you're still getting at some kind of uh, the, as detailed truth as possible in a way, you know, cutting yes, out every little nuance that possible. Yeah. yeah. Yes, but no. Poetry, you know, you know, tell it true, but tell it slant. I'm saying that wrong. It's all the digressions. It's all, see that when the answers answers your other question about the details. You can't just say my father hurt my feelings by being a crook. You can't say that, it's not poetry, it's nothing. You can say that in a brief. My adversary is a crook and he ought to be thrown <laughs> in jail. Whatever you need to say, you can just say it. Because, and it's encouraged that you say it, but in poetry, it's all in what you can bring to it that illuminates it sideways or slant ways or some other way. So all that stuff about how I like to burn garbage, those are true passions that I once had. 
but they only are relevant because they're illuminating the other story, the story you don't want to tell, the story you have to tell, and the story that you can't tell without digressions, tangents, and by the ways. Mm-hmm. You know, you start in, 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 in law, you start with this guy's an idiot. That, you know, that's the subtext in everything you write. In poetry, you want to come in from left field. You just you don't you, you want to start out on the street outside the baseball stadium and work your way all the way to home plate. That's the joy of it. And and that 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 all these things that seem irrelevant. Like I had this teacher, Art Hoffman, who was talking about John Dryden, and he said, Some people say that John Dryden well, he had this big mustache and he wore bow ties. Some people say that John Dryden's metaphors were far-fetched. Well, I say the further fetched, the better. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, a really good distinction between the two. Uh, I want to keep the poems going. I'm not sure we're going to get to all eight that you wanted to read. So That's let's okay. uh, let's read the next one, though. Uh, next That's up, we great. had uh, New Year's Eve, which is a good one. Right, so it which, gets into your mom, I wanted too. To read, yeah. I wanted, you know, the, the book really tries to get out to my family. And this poem gets out to my mother, which is... Um, she was a very important part of my experience of the car wash for reasons that would take two years to explain. New Year's Eve. <clears throat> After my brother and I had been washed and put to bed, my mother, dressed, perfumed, jeweled, and high-heeled, would come into our room to wish us a happy New Year. My mom believed in New Year's Eve. You could see it in the way she stood there, backlit, by the hall light. She believed in beaded dresses, dangly earrings, a sleeve of bracelets, blue eyeshadow, and Shalimar perfume. Going out on a cold night in a warm car with crusty snow pushed back in a fan shape from the windshield, headlights making prisms of the streetlights, arriving by car, stockinged leg by leg emerging on heels, and the teetered reach for a husband's hand. She believed in being seen by the other women arriving and going into a decorated room, even if you yourself that very afternoon in jeans and dirty sneakers had done the decorating. She believed in drinks, the naughtiness of drinks, in saying, oh, no, I shouldn't, and okay, why not? She believed that it mattered how many times you were asked a thing before you gave in, and she took joy from giving in. She believed in laughing till she cried. Laughing tears were evidence. A stitch in your side was proof and not caring if your stockings tore was the closing argument of a good time. She believed in dancing with your husband or if he wouldn't dance, then dancing with your husband's friend or your friend's husband. She believed in dancing, rumba, waltz, foxtrot. She believed in looking up at the band when the rhythm changed as though the band were the ones making suggestions. You guys was an actual color of light in her eyes. She had a memory for her partners, dance to dance and year to year, who had a firm hand on her low back or a confident release or hair that she liked to look at in the lights. She believed in sitting down beside you at your table after dancing and saying, Oh my God, I'm not as young as I used to be. 
she believed that something happened at midnight. She believed something could happen at midnight. She believed that something was going to happen at midnight. And standing in the doorway of our room, she wanted my brother and me to know that she loved us, that she wished us a very happy new year, even though she couldn't be with us when the new year came, even though we couldn't be awake when the new year came, even though we couldn't see the thing that happened when the new year came, except as a color of light in her eyes. Yeah, and that was New Year's Eve, another poem from At the Car Wash by Arthur Russell. And, you know, you can see it's just a great uh, character sketch. And you can see that the details come to life and, and bring the poem to life about your mother, too. It's not just the car wash that has this deep, rich memories and images and, and you know, where things come across so vividly. Uh, what is your writing process like when it comes to actually sitting down, you know, at your desk? I'm imagining you now alone in your attorney's office and saying, yeah. I'm going to take a break from this brief and I'm going to write a poem. No, no, I don't, do, I don't do that. I don't do that at all. I mean, once the day is ruined by law work, I have a, it takes a long time to get back to a poem. And sometimes I will. I have a notebook, mm-hmm. right? My notebook, I'm touching my notebook now. I write in it every day, more or less every day. And I, and then I transfer stuff into word and type it up and as i type i revise and sometimes that's when a notion to do something formally with the poem will come along i like to write in blank verse so if i'm going to move something into a blank verse mode sometimes that's just a way to come to grips with it a little bit more to shorten it to edit it because the demands of the form tell me what i can and i can't do and that, that's what my process is like. And of course, I'm a member of the Red Wheelbarrow Workshop that meets every Tuesday at seven o'clock. And you can get the details <laughs> from Frank Rubino, who's probably watching now and, and come along with us. It's free. And we've been around since 2006. Although Frank and I only took over from Jim Klein, the great poet, when uh, <clears throat> when COVID came along. So that's my process. It's been my process all along. I just try to get to it. And when I get to it, I try to stay with it as long as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a question from Deb Tannenbaum. She asks, uh, the poems we've heard so far come from the past. I wonder, do you also write about the present? And, and that's something I was going to ask, too. Is it hard, you know, because you dig so well into memory. Is it hard to write about things that aren't, um, you know, rooted in memory like that? Or is that sort of what you do and what you enjoy doing? No, I uh, this this you know I used to lump all my poems together and put them into manuscripts and send them out and expect everybody to see that since they're all written by the same person they all came from one intelligence and therefore they should all be in a book together, but I I I would say no I have I have poems that relate to the car wash, I have uh, another set of poems that relate to my experience of poetry so there are as poetica or responses I have responses to Walt Whitman Marion Moore Gregory Pardlow you know, on and on different poets that I've read or met and talked to. And that makes up a a pretty big swath of what I do. And then I have my love poems, you know, got to have your love poems. Those are all based in the present or the wished for present, Mm -hmm. the anguished past. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have time. I think we could do uh, two more poems uh, out of the three. So so which two do you want to do? And and what's the penultimate one? Well, okay, the penultimate one will be this somewhat more lyrical poem called Mom Would Be a Cardinal. And then I want to read a poem that I just wrote this week, Uh, again, about the car wash. Uh, Mom would be a cardinal. Uh, Mom would be a cardinal. 
the brown beside the red one, who perched along the fence rail and picked apart the seed pods he gathered from the hosta, exposing seeds like rice, rice grains. He scattered them profusely. Then she would land beside him. They'd eat their fill of hosta and leave a mess of seed coats and seeds along the fence rail. And flying off together, she'd chase him through the pine boughs. Their nest was in the privet. She called him from the privet. She called him from the privet. His head cocked toward the privet. He seemed to think about it as older men consider, then rose up from the railing and flew between the houses. Dad would be a cardinal. The red one in the spruce tree who wore his red cap backwards and celebrated winter by rooting through the holly, fighting with the squirrel who tried to raid the feeder and perching in the blue spruce as noble as a wind vane. Mom would be a cardinal. Emerging in the springtime, the brown beside the red one with dirty snow on fences in air that bore him forward. How dusty brown her plumage. She called him from the privet. She called him from the privet. She called him from the privet. And that was a beautiful poem. Mom would be a cardinal. And I love the turn and it takes, you know, bringing it into your mom as well. Uh, that was one of the things we had trouble with, with a book is because it was a little too long. And also as a chapbook, we wanted it to have a, a real sense of the theme and, and cohesion and, and density, which is a, a, the state of a chapbook. And so figuring out which poems to include and which poems not to include was a really the main challenge, I think, of putting this book together. So so do you have a full-length book? We always kind of hope that the Rattle Chapel Prize winner will become, you know, a full-length book, which I think Zaina Hashem Beck did. I know other people have done that, too. Are you stretching this manuscript out right now into a longer book? Well, there's the five that you didn't put in, so that <laughs> that gets me up to around 45, 50 pages. And, and yes, I have others I'm in various stages of production. You know, they, they need a lot of resting time. Uh, before they they come in but uh, yeah I have the one I just finished now which actually I started a few years ago and um, I have ideas for a bunch more and the idea of the book as I see it is a gyre that spreads outward from the the physical plant and the people there outward to include the people that I worked with my mother my sister the people who worked across the street and so it becomes more of a portrait of Brooklyn in the 1980s yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, Nate Jacob in the comments a while ago mentioned uh, the used the word orbit a lot um, in the book. And I was thinking about how the, you know, the the book is almost about the people orbiting the uh, the car wash, you know, and, and that's sort of the nexus of gravity that everybody's swirling around. So it's interesting to think of it from that respect and uh, a new book coming into be, being in, the, in that direction. And on that, and I'll tell you, my dad, one of the stories he told me, I said, you know, asked him about the car wash. And he told me he'd grown up part of his life in Massachusetts, part in New Jersey, but part around high school in New York and in Brooklyn. And he said that when he wanted to build the car wash, he took a map of Brooklyn and he made an X cross it. Brooklyn's sort of roundish or squarish. And where the center of that that mark was is where he wanted to build his car wash and he did oh, so now this book rising up from the center of that car wash from the center of that location 
Oh, that's really interesting. Well, I'm sure everybody who's read the chapbook can't wait for the longer version. It's going to be excellent as well. Um, uh, one more question. I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your workshop experience because the the wet, red wheelbarrow poets are so crucial to I think what you do, you've been doing for the last eight years. Uh, what do you think you get out of a workshop, and, and how do you you know how is a workshop productive for writers? Because obviously this one is. Uh, what what aspects of it make the workshop work? You know, I've thought a lot about that, Tim. <laughs> and and some days I don't really agree with the premise of your question <laughs> because it doesn't seem to work, you know. But the thing is, you know, there's a group of us, and I won't mention names because why bother, but it's you the thing is you take them home with you and then they're there when you're writing. Mm-hmm. And, and that place, when you're at home and you're writing, when whatever conflict or, you know, uh, ego or argument is in the past, the truth of people's ears is in your head mm-hmm. and you can write to their ears. And, you know, like this poem I'm going to read next I'm definitely thinking of Don Zerilli the whole time I'm writing this poem. It's like, because Don Zerilli is my bullshit meter. (laughs) (laughs) You know know what I mean? It's just Mm -hmm. like, no, I can't say that. And before that, for the first six or seven years, when I was just a member of the workshop, Jim Klein, a fantastic poet who's gotten a little older now these days and didn't want to lead it anymore when zoom and computers were involved jim is always in my ear and everybody there said oh claudia says the same thing jim is in your ear all the time and that's why you go and you put up with the crappy poems and the and the and the people who want to argue and the guy who you ask have any questions for the group and he starts justifying every decision that he made when he wrote the poem that's when all that just fades away and you're just alone and then you're alone with these people and they're all very simple Sympathetic, and they love you and they want you to do well and you knew that all along and now you're finally getting a chance alone to do that oh that's really interesting yeah good way to put it too the you know i always think of too reading poems at an open mic or anywhere is the, is the same way to sort of because uh, it's so easy to, to delude yourself you know and to, to trick yourself and think oh this is okay this is going to work I can make this up I can I pulled it off here when you really know you, you didn't and then having to read it out loud in front of somebody is what really helps to uh, clarify that and, and make yourself be honest with yourself and this poem that I'm about to read to you is going to the workshop tomorrow <laughs> night ah perfect well that's perfect timing <laughs> let's hear it okay um This one is called Prayer on My Back, Under the Side Window Brush. So it takes us back into the car wash. Lord of the men who wait for work on days when steady rain has closed the car wash tight, whose coffee light and sweet is all they'll get for breakfast, sitting on the towel carts, perched on 16-gallon oil drums converted into garbage cans and covered with a square of plywood polished by their tired butts and rounded from the times they've fallen. Lord, the manager, named Artie, sewn in yellow on his dark blue canvas zip-up jacket, pads among the sitting, standing, smoking men, his shoulder-padding shepherd's voice says, wait, We'll see. It might clear up. He writes their names in hopes of squeezing in a half day's work while rain inscribes the future on the skyline. At 10, 
the forecast wet, he sends them home with nothing more than car fare or with five to stay alive, a draw on Sunday's pay. He sends them, Lord, down church to East 15th, the subway there. I watch them from the door, these sodden, head-down men I know so well, their hats pulled tight, or those who have no hats, a New York Post. Though Artie taps a few to stay behind, to help us change the motor that turns the sudsy brush that scrubs the glass behind the side-view mirror, which, because the seals began to leak hydraulic oil, that the brush began to smear the windows with, which shut down, tied back, left for several days to work on on a rainy day like this. Now someone, Lord, will have to crawl inside the cabinet that holds that window brush and free the rusted hex nuts from the studs that keep the busted motor flange in place and not just crawl, lie supine and reach up into the phobic chimney to apply a lubricant that smells like licorice and boss's son or no begin to whack it with a box end wrench until the rusted threads break free. That someone, Lord, is me. Now, someone spread a car wash towel for where I'll lay my head. And someone holds the drop light from above. And someone's there to take the busted motor from my hand. And someone's got the new one out. And Alan, Artie's son, who served in Berlin during Vietnam and had a dream to be a forest ranger before the car wash grabbed him by the wallet holds out the 13 sixteenths wrench to me. And I, I am alone. I am surrounded and alone in a job I never wanted, in a business I find cruel, with insufficient confidence that reaching as I must, my elbows cramped by chimney walls in knuckle buster regions high above my head, my arms and shoulders much less strong than they should be, an agent of my father, I, his hands, but not his skilled mechanic's hands, alone, but for his absent voice, inherent in my ear. Lord, the callus in my hands is spreading to my heart. This 13 16 wrench is not the pen I want. Lord, something empty has me in this cabinet. I don't belong beneath this window brush this rainy summer day. There's got to be a way to leave. I'm only 24. It's raining, and I have nowhere to leave or stay. I have no way to leave or stay. The men who come to work for us are miserable, and so am I. So what is there to say, dear Lord, but let there be a way, or let a way be made. I need your love, forgiveness, and to make my life habitable this rainy summer day. Yeah, another beautifully rich poem that was uh, prayer on my back under the side window brush. A uh, great way to end the the portion uh, for the preview of the uh, full-length book that's probably coming out at some point from Arthur Russell. Uh, thanks, Arthur, for being a guest. So much uh, insight into poetry and great you know, hearing the uh, poet behind the poems. I appreciate it. 
Well, Tim, thank you so much for picking this poem, this book of poems. I can't tell you how it's changed things for me. It's done so much, I can't even begin to describe it. And it's it's all up to you. So thanks very much. Ah, well, thanks so much for, for writing it and for being a guest. I appreciate it, Arthur. Take care. Hey, once again, that was uh, Arthur Russell with uh, the author of At the Car Wash, the book that's coming up uh, that just came out with Rattle's fall issue. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to our open lines. And so if you're here at the first time, there's a, probably a lot of first time listeners from maybe the Red Wheelbarrow Poets. If you'd like to share a poem, how you do it is this. It's one poem per customer. Try to make it a short poem, two page max. But if you can do even shorter than that, that's good because we try to get to as many poets as possible. Uh, I'm going to take the Zoom link first and paste it into the chat windows on Facebook and and YouTube. So that is the, the first thing to do is to go to the Zoom. And then also, after, or before you do that even, email your poem to openmic, that's openmic at rattle.com. Once again, that's openmic, openmic at rattle.com. Email your poem there so I can show it on screen as you read it. It makes the reading experience a lot better. So hop onto the Zoom, email me a poem, um, share it, then go back to the original uh, you know, Rattlecast stream wherever you're watching because it's better to watch too when you can see the poems. But uh, that's how you join the open lines. You can share prompt poems. We have a prompt poem every week. You can share poems about current events. You can share um, poems you've written recently or published recently. Anything you would like. The lines are open. We'll go for a little over an hour, I'm sure. So uh, join us right now, and I'll see you in just a moment with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. We have Katie Dozier, a prompt poem editor in the house. Of course, this is her house. So hi, Katie. Thanks <laughs> yes, for letting us, <laughs> letting us use the house. And uh, we're going to start out with the, this week's uh, prompt poem, uh, or prompt, which is, let me put this on the screen. The prompt this week was to, it was based on um, um, Anders Carlson Wee's um, Cups. And it was to pick an inanimate object and trace the evolution of your relationship with it throughout your life and title it with the name of that object. So, uh, and let me, uh, we got to mute some people. Hang on, let me, and make sure you're muted if you come in on the Zoom. There we go. Okay. Yeah. So if you're on the Zoom, make sure you stay muted. Uh, Just watch on the Zoom until you read a poem too, I should have said, but uh, here we go. So uh, Katie's prompt poem, and Katie's right here, will... Can you can you scooch over? I can scooch over. (laughs) Okay. It is. We need a bigger. I'm like diving forward. Okay. Here we go. Okay. So here's Katie's poem, which was this, and I'll slide it over. Uh I'm like awkwardly leaning. Okay. I'll slide it over here. There we go. Okay. The rocks. You brought them back to me in a sack, heavy like good fruit gone bad. Thanks a lot, Dad. Just a pile of rocks, and not the kind they'd sell in any gift shop. No glitter in their grayness. No twinkling universe to be unlocked by smashing a geode. The tiger's eye was far away. He could have brought me back a German teddy bear or perhaps a stuffed pretzel, but instead, the rocks. The rocks like jagged eyebrows, the rocks like craggy fists. For years, they sagged the cabinets of my garage, as if to insist they would always exist, trapped beneath thrift store ornaments painted like globes. One Christmas, I bought a big balsam fir, and when I shoved my hand in a box underneath the broken bulbs, the rocks were waiting, still wrapped in the time capsule of newspapers. The hardest thing to recycle is hate. 
but I tucked the rocks in my grandmother's silver bowl to build the fledglings a nest. Even with their weathered faces, the gemstones now reflect in precious metal. As I call dad, the morning sun crosses my living room. The line of light runs from east to west, never pausing to find some excuse to fight, only to enjoy the few days left. Yeah, great poem, uh, those uh, rocks from the Berlin Wall. And uh, so what was it like writing that uh, to that prompt? I really liked the, the idea of basing a poem on cups. I think it was an excellent poem and a lot of, uh, a lot of things to think about. Well, it was really a fun thing, I think, because I'm also, I'm a very sentimental person. So for me, I made a list of different ones I could write. I think I could write, like, honestly, a whole book on that prompt. I also should say, because I think my dad's listening, that he probably did bring me a teddy bear also from Germany. But for dramatic effect, I had to pretend like he only gave me rocks. So sorry about that, Dad. But I'm sure you gave me a teddy bear when I was five, too. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you did, knowing your dad. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so that was Katie's poem. And then this is mine. Let me uh, scroll down or up to mine. In mine, I thought too about my dad a little, uh, a little more harshly maybe than, uh, and, and I was trying with this poem uh, to find a form. At first, it came out as a uh, as a triolet, and I wanted a little more detail. That I thought I'd do a, to change it to a villanelle, and then that was a little too long. And so I looked, I literally Googled French forms. Yeah, because they like, sound very French this <laughs> <yeah>. week. <laughs> and so then I, Googled, I Googled French forms, and I found the rondelle, um, which is, um, uh, it's sort of like a combination. It's like if the triolet and the villanelle, um, you know, had a baby, it would be mm -hmm. a rondelle. So you'll hear the refrain, but you'll also hear some repetition and rhyme, too. And uh, here we go. This is rondelle uh, for the watch in a drawer. Rondell for the watch in a drawer. I never wore the watch my father gave me. I never tried to sell it, though. A band of leather, face of plated gold. It wasn't worth enough to make me. His only gift from when he didn't hate me, those days we sometimes said hello. I never wore the watch my father gave me. I never tried to sell it, though. I did remove it from the box to save me from what might be engraved. But no, the back was blank. There were no words to show his thoughts, the man who merely named me. I never wore the watch my father gave me. Mm. So there is the uh, rondelle for the watch in a drawer. Well, that's a very powerful poem. I really oh, enjoyed that. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so let's see what everybody else has. We have 21 people here, so we do have to try to move quickly. Uh, but it's great. I love how many more people are coming in. Uh, it's wonderful. What we'll try to do is get to as many people as we can. Eventually, we have to stop. But I'll try to make sure we get to all the new voices first, too. But let's, uh, to show us how it's done, let's start with Audrey Friedman. Hey, Audrey, how you doing? Are you there? Prompt poem. Mm -hmm. And uh, I hope I don't bore you all with yet another high bun. <laughs> oh, never. We love high boon around here. <laughs> ah, yeah. You've got me going on braided <laughs> ones now. Their Wedding Portrait, 1946. Two beautiful people. He in a tuxedo with tails. She in a gown of Chantilly lace. She doesn't have the scowl yet. He, dashing in his top hat, looks eagerly toward his future, less meek than I ever remembered. They are cameoed in an ornately vine silver frame. Strangers. 
In 2005, I rummaged through their drawers and closets, emptying their apartment. I weeded through old cards, correspondence, and other ephemera. I toss and donate, save what I treasure, grandpa's rocker, mother's wedding ring, and that photograph, my untarnished parents. If only there was a chart of their path that indicated impasses with dashes and blips, I could put down the picture and let these lingering ghosts get some rest, wed with rings of thorn. Oh, and so, yeah, that's beautiful. I don't know if that, you're supposed to read the uh, haiku by itself, but can you read the haiku too? Because it's yes, a braided hyphen. Yeah, and I, so the haiku's I, buried in there. I was just going to do that. Strangers, my untarnished parents, wed with rings of thorn. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Their wedding portrait, 1946. Thanks so much for sharing that, Audrey. That was excellent. An example of a braided hyphen form. Really wonderful. Thank you. That means a lot to me, Tim. Thanks. Thanks. Take care. That was Audrey Friedman uh, with uh, uh, their wedding portrait, 1946. And again, thanks for the prompt, Katie. <laughs> I love the use of untarnished in that hyphen, too. I'm going to just like some staring at it still on the screen and reading it again. Actually, it's really wonderful, Audrey. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. It really is. Thanks, Audrey. All right. That was Audrey Friedman with uh, that poem. And now let's go next to a first time caller. Let's try. I think I saw. Oh, yeah. Let's do uh, Rachel R. Baum. So we'll ask Rachel to unmute. Hey, Rachel. Hi. Can you see me okay? We can. I can. Yeah, you look yeah. great. You're on screen and, uh, and we hear you perfectly. So uh, where are you calling from, first of all? Uh, Saratoga Springs, New York. Ah, great. Well, thanks so much for joining. And uh, Saratoga Springs is sort of near. Is Are you a red wheelbarrow poet? I thought maybe that'd be a possibility. No, no, but I aspire to be. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what do you have to share with us tonight? Um, well, my very good friend and writing mentor, Rolaine Hochstein, um, passed away three weeks ago. And yesterday was her memorial mm. service. And so I wrote this on the train coming back from the service. Um, it's called This She Gave Me. She drove her walker as if it was a Harley. There was always somewhere she had to be, a luncheon, a gallery opening, dinner with friends, the opera, but not just any opera. It had to be Tosca or Aida. Plays were Sondheim, concerts were Handel or Liszt. She curated museum visits by traveling exhibit. Time was too brief to waste it on shows in which she had little interest. The last time we went together to the Pierpont Morgan, I left her in the much anticipated Ulysses room while I went variously to the gift shop, the piano edition, the cafe, and back to her again and again. She had not moved. She sat in the trapeze seat of her walker and studied James Joyce's draft manuscript, his handwritten notes, letters from his publisher, even his spectacles. She scrutinized with the attention and reverence she invested in all things that held deep meaning for her. This she gave me, that complete unabashed immersion 
in what makes you most passionate is always worthwhile. Let others meander down aisles, wander the halls without direction, rely on serendipity. She believed that you must discern what moves you and then seek it out, share it with the one you are with, champion its virtues, create an appreciative onlooker, or perhaps even another admirer. This she gave me, that nothing will or should distract you from the delight your heart achieves when swept up in enduring, steadfast, and unwavering love. Oh, that was a beautiful tribute. Thanks so much for sharing that, Rachel. That was uh, This She Gave Me by Rachel Baum. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I was going to say that was Rachel R. Baum um, with that uh, This She Gave Me. Let me uh, go next to uh, Gwendolyn Soper, who I recognized from a Zoom recently. Hey, Gwendolyn, oh, how are you doing? There. Yeah. I'm doing well. Good to see you both. Yeah, it's great oh. to see you. So, um, oops, somebody, let's see. Make sure if you're not talking, make sure you're muted. So Mary Lisa, stay muted. <laughs> okay, so Gwendolyn was here, uh, uh, did a, a wonderful tribute to Billy Collins uh, that, that Katie and I were at uh, a couple weeks ago. Good to see you again. It's good to see you too. Um, so what do you have that you'd like to share today? The poem's called Storm Window, and I'll just jump right in. Does that sound good? Yeah, please do. Go ahead. I'll put it up for everybody at home, and you got to read your own version. Okay. Okay. Storm Windows. During this morning's snowfall, I recall my father-in-law nailing together corners of storm window frames set down flat on their frosty lawn 30 years ago. How he'd staple plastic sheeting onto the wood, preparing for another winter, a harsh one, most likely. Then he'd lift the frames and put them into place. His face and figure became opaque from where I stood inside, bouncing a baby on my hip walking from kitchen to bedrooms, intrigued by my changing view of his outside world. I'm not sure how effective those makeshift frames were, yet the process is a description of his essence. I find by remembering the milky image of his face, his plaid blue coat, his hands gloved and bitter cold, I finally see him more clearly now. Oh, that was wonderful. That was Gwendolyn Soper with Storm Windows. Great use of the prompt, too, of uh, you know, that item throughout time, uh, you know, representing something. Yeah. Yeah, really wonderful, Thanks. Gwendolyn. Thank you. Th thanks for the prompt. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, we have another one this week. Uh, <laughs> always so fun. I love prompt poems, so it's fun to be able to share them. That was Gwendolyn Soper once again with Storm Windows. Next, let's go to, um, go back in order. Let's go to, who's next? Nate Jacob is next. How am I doing? Hey, you're doing great now. Good to see you, Nate, as always. <laughs> Good evening. Hey, I got a uh, prompt poem. Excellent. And so, uh, so anything you want to say about it before, uh, before you go and read? Um, you know, I'm always asking if poets write true stories. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, I write truthy stories, but I, I don't claim anything's true. So that's all. <laughs> all right, <laughs> well, okay, let's hear it. <laughs> All right. It's titled Clarity in a Glacial Lake. My sister had a mood ring, so you could trust her when she told you she was mad at you again for stealing her Flock of Seagulls album again and wearing her blouse again like the band did. Ah, the 80s. At some point, I borrowed that ring, too, thinking I would discover true and fabulous joy, slipped it onto my finger, 
only to reveal that I was surprisingly bored and frustrated, perhaps because of my limited fashion options. I kept wearing that ring for a frustrating week, hoping that at some point it would stop telling me that I was anxious or sad, fearful, fearful or mad. There were times I was better dressed, convinced of my own wellness, despite the ring's assertions to the contrary. I was happier than the ring allowed. So I gave it back to my sister, explaining to her that though it was broken, I had not been the one to break it. It simply, sadly, wasn't working for me. She was mad, understandably. The ring demanded it. Today, in the mountain village below our camp, my contented kids all bought $3 mood rings. And for two hours, in the green and the unfiltered light, they hiked from waterfall to lakefront and back, comparing colors and moods, joking and laughing that the rings were decidedly out of tune with reality. And the darkening blues coursing from each stone had no power over them. I knew better. So did the rings. And so I made plans to lose those conspiring things, to throw them to the colorful pebbles at the lake's bottom, let them settle in among better feelings and leave us to ours. Oh, that was wonderful. Such a great story. Clarity in a glacier lake. Um, always really entertaining, Nate, but that was especially good. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah, it was Nate Jacob with uh, Clarity in a Glacial Lake. Um, yeah, great poems already tonight. Let's go to Caitlin Buxbaum next. Hello. Hey, Caitlin, how are you tonight? Pretty good. My mouse is really finicky, so sometimes it goes away, and that's unfortunate. <laughs> um, okay, uh, so thank you for publishing my poem today. Yeah, po um, poet of the day. I should have mentioned. Yeah, poet of the day on Rattle today in the daily email. So uh, sixteen thousand people at least read your poem, which is always fun. So congratulations on that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, so I got some questions in my inbox today about the Dio, since the poem that posted today was written in that form. Uh -huh. So um, I decided to attempt the prompt poem at, you know, 4.15 when the show had already started. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, we had the Alaska Writers Guild Conference this weekend. And so last week was like super busy. And I had every intention of writing some great poem and we'll yeah, I wrote a thing. <laughs> um, so I'll read the poem, and then if I could just say a sentence or two about what a Dio is. Yeah, convenient um, that it's a very short form for trying to write one during the show. <laughs> yeah, so technically I didn't follow the part of the prompt where you like trace it through your life, but I did write about an object. So. All right, sounds good, but let's hear it. Um, and it's called Cuffs, not cups, but similar. <laughs> that, that inspired me. Um, and... I had it pulled up and then it disappeared. Hold on, give me one second. I can find it, I swear. There it is. Cuffs. Unraveling every day, my sleeves still fall too far from my wrists. Excellent. And, and that's so, it. Yeah. <laughs> that is, uh, so, um, so what's the form of deal? This is something I only know because of the one... Uh, that we published uh, of yours. So, so what is a deal? I've never heard of that before. Yes. So this is a form invented by Jimmy Pappas, who is the reason that I know about Rattle. Well, <laughs> yeah, he pretty was another, much. Another Rattle Chepik Prize winner on a Rattlecast about two and a half years ago, I'd say. So, yeah. I think my subscription started with him. I think that first chapbook I got was his. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, so the D-O, um, D-Y-O, is Greek for two. 
and he's Greek, so that's how he came up with the name. Um, and the idea is to write a haiku-like poem that employs stanzas of two lines for a total of three words. So you have one word, a second word, and then on the next line, a third word. And the third word, he said, should be an important word. So you can interpret that however you want, but generally don't use something like a or the or and. Um, and his, I think, are a little bit shorter than mine. But basically what we decided on is less than a page is good. If you go more than a page, then it's not really haiku-like anymore and the sparseness kind of just drags so um and that's actually kind of what happened with this poem that i wrote today is i wrote two or three stanzas after that and i'm like nope that just feels like i wrote past the ending so we'll just leave it at this um so yeah that's what it is well, that's really neat it feels like the poem is unraveling just like it's supposed to with your subject matter <laughs> it's neat yeah and it's about a red sweatshirt which is the what my publishing company red sweater press is named for um oh. which my dad got me on a trip to dc um and brought brought it back for me when i was in sixth grade and he knew i liked red but the only one left was an extra large and i was 12 <laughs> so <laughs> but i still have it and the cuffs are literally like hanging off of it um oh that's and, wonderful yeah. I, you know i was wondering why because your, your emails come from red sweater press and i was uh, wondering you know what the what the story behind that was i'm glad i get to learn thanks for sharing yeah. that too mm -hmm. yeah really thanks cool, for uh, having me on yeah yeah thanks for sharing the, the uh, forum as well i sense maybe a prompt coming up in the future, Katie, maybe? Oh, yeah, maybe. I like that form. That's my, my speed. <laughs> yeah, I like it. And that will make Jimmy very happy. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll definitely do that at some point. Thanks for sharing that, Caitlin. So, uh, yes, yeah, so that was Caitlin Buxbaum with uh, Cuffs. And next, let's go to... Um, next, let's go to another first-time caller. This is Isabel. Is that good? That is. Hello. It's great to see you. So where are you calling from? I'm in Montreal right now, ah, but I'm originally from Wales. Uh, oh, very cool. So another Canadian. We have a, a several a Canadian cohort out there. Good, good, good to join you, or good for joining us. Thank you, Tim. And the prompt uh, inspired me somewhat like your poem about a watch. Oh, really? Okay. So this is Mother's Watch, bought long ago at the shop of the Institute for the Blind. No, ma'am, your sight is not deteriorated enough to entitle you to our talking books. Well, I'm not going home empty-handed. The luminous face glowed when she touched the winding knob, just as her face lit up when I visited her every evening of those last months. The wide band grew clumsy on her bony wrist, when I wake at night, I can tell the time. I envied her practical dismissal of eternity, tick-tocking towards her. Make sure your sister gets Granny's gold bracelet. You can have my watch. Treasured for the years of daily use, it gripped her wrist, measured her pulse. Some essence of her seeped into the bracelet, into the large face, its bold numbers illuminating in turn 
my own sleepless nights. Oh, that was beautiful poem. That was Isabel Cunningham. Yeah, I still couldn't find it. So be sure to submit it because I don't think it's there in the submissions. But but it's great to uh, to hear you and have you on. That was a wonderful poem. Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah, that was Isabel Cunningham uh, with another poem about a watch. Wonderful stuff. Okay, next up we have, uh, let's go to Joe Cottonwood. Hey, Joe. Hey, hi, Tim. Yeah, good to see you again. Um Glad to be back. Um, I, I thank you for the prompt. Um, they, they seem to pull things out of me that I don't know are inside. Yeah, that's always the goal. And we love it when it does that. Yeah. <laughs> and it, 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 I, I have a liberal interpretation of, of in an inanimate object, I guess. This is an inanimate object poem, but it's about a tattoo. Interesting. Yeah, well, th- um, definitely. That I love stretches of the prompts, too. So let's hear that. Um, so let me just... Do you have it there? I do. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, I'll just read it. Leaf Tattoo. A boy named Craig in second grade, smaller than me, but stronger, lifted a stone size of a hubcap over my head and dropped it, digging a divot of hair and flesh. Lubricated by red blood from my skull, astonishing us both. Craig picked up my scrap of scalp and dangled it, dripping from fingers. Couldn't answer why, as teachers came running, but it was the last we saw of Craig. From that day and throughout childhood, I had a bald spot, a scar like a dead leaf, top of my head, which seemed not part of me, but carried by me, inanimate detached like senseless violence. A bold girl named Betsy touched it once and let me touch her nipple, just one touch, one nipple. Then we threw stones into water to watch them splash and sink and disappear. Sometimes yet in autumn, when the trees let go, I feel the luff of air as we fall. Oh, great details in that, Joe. Uh, that was Leaf Tattoo by Joe Cottonwood. And it occurs to me, Katie, that uh, you know, this was a prompt based on Anders Carlson Wee, but it could have been a prompt based on uh, today's guest, Russell or Arthur Russell, because it's so because uh, the details are such an important aspect of his writing, That's too. That's true. We're supposed to say we planned that. We did. <laughs> oh, we planned that. <laughs> totally we... planned that with the details. <laughs> <laughs> totally planned. But excellent, excellent example. Great details in that, Joe. Really vivid. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, it was Joe Cottonwood with Leaf Tattoo. And uh, next we have uh, Doodle Slice, also known as David Cohen. Hey, how you doing? Okay, now I'm unmuted. I can say I'm good. Yeah, it's great to see you. It's been a bit. I know. Mondays are kind of tough sometimes, but I uh, was glad to get a chance. Uh, Actually, last week I was up in New Jersey visiting my mom who still lives in the house I grew up in. And so it was the perfect time for that prompt to like, you know, right prompt, right place, right time. Uh (laughs) Well, that's great. And so, uh, did you email it to me? I'm looking up. I submitted it. Submitted. Okay. Let me pull that up then from this side. That's the problem. There's now two places I have to look, but (laughs) it works out if if we're patient. All right. So, here we go. This is uh, My Father's Globe. Yep. Perfect. It's called okay. My Father's Globe, The Whole World Illuminated. Crayons, 
covet comfort. A large living room, a small solar system, but soon removed to a room that would be mine and not, but for a smaller episode, a family room, playroom, poster of the universe, enjoying the inner glow, that tiny pull chain light switch, ching chunk on, ching chunk off, and the continents and the current arrows and the tiny writing and names that have changed, the meridian. I don't remember writing on it. I don't remember tearing up off a, a corner of that laminated paper. I remember changing the bulb for the first time in Baltimore, a nervous business extricating, firmly holding the brass circlet axis thingamajig, <laughs> fear and pride. This glass fear was my whole responsibility. It felt like legacy. It was a bachelor's treasure from my pop's apartment. Now the pride of my atelier dump in Charm City. Like my father, I found other fascinations and the globe found a corner in Atlanta. When did the lion lose a paw? I know the light still works. Even now, 20 years since I last pulled that chain. What does it mean to own the whole world when the world is too small and the facts are out of date? Believe it or not, a hula hoop sits in the same corner, about the same size as the brass axis hoop. I haven't traveled anywhere but home in years. Pop would want, we planted a tree for him two years ago. My mom is reading the paper in New Jersey. My whole world is as big as her kitchen and my Atlanta loft. Why did I think of the globe? I never follow prompts. I'm stubborn, like my father. He wrote wonderful bad poems and painted wonderful bad paintings. He was the whole world. When I get back, I think I'll check the bulb and dust the glass. But the crayon never goes away. Mm, that was excellent. My Father's Globe, The Whole World, illuminated by David Cohen, Doodle Slice. And, you know, I got to say, you know, we hit both the vividness of Arthur Russell's poems and, and the honesty and that, that great voice there in that as you tell the story. Thanks for sharing that, David. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. That was uh, David Cohen with uh, My Father's Globe. And uh, next up, let's go to Brian O'Sullivan. Hello. Hey, Brian. Good to see you again. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Good to be here. Um, I have a vaguely prompt adjacent poem because I tend to lose <laughs> things too fast to have anything that I can evolve uh, with or trace its evolution <laughs> in my life. So more of a category of objects. Well, as long as the prompt inspires it, we're happy. Yeah. yeah. Happy for that. Yeah, that, that happens. <laughs> It's called This Morning. Um, so CNN is waiting. For, you, you got it? Yep, I got CNN it. Go ahead. Is, okay, this morning. CNN is waiting for another Trump hearing, and its camera is trained on a radiator in the courthouse in New York. It reminds Jen of the radiator in our old fourth floor apartment in a once grand, long, dilapidated townhouse in West Philly. And it reminds me of the hiss of steam in a clinic in Queens, where I played with my Batman action figure while waiting for a checkup. Jen points out that radiatory pasta are supposed to resemble radiator grills, and we begin to wonder if other people are watching the radiator on CNN. 
Maybe a commentator will fill the time by saying, Allison, I'd just like to take a moment to comment on that old-timey radiator at the center of our shot. <clears throat> and the Chiron soon may flash. All eyes on old radiator in New York courthouse. We crack ourselves up, and all the foolishness of all the world fades in the radiance of our silliness. <laughs> that was great. I love that detail to focus on uh, this morning, Brian. Excellent poem. I was definitely cracking up here. <laughs> yeah, <definitely. laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Take care. Yeah, it's Brian O'Sullivan with this morning. <laughs> uh, let's go to another. I think I think Lisa Seidenberg might have been on before, but not very often. So let's see. Hi, Lisa. Um, hi. I just lost you. Yes. Hi. Yeah, I, hi. Good to see you. My my second. Um, my is it a debut? My second debut. Yeah, your your uh, re <laughs> my review re review. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, so I don't, I don't have a prompt. Um, I have a, a poet's respond. Uh -huh. Um, we had, um, we had a, a, an awful lot of rain here last, last week in the Northeast. And so I, I wrote a poem about that. Um, it's, it's me probably still a work in progress, but, um, here it is. You have it. Yeah, go I ahead. think. Mm -hmm. Once in a century rainstorm happens every three weeks, the epigram as rain continues to impact downstate areas throughout the day, don't attempt to walk, bike, or drive in these conditions. Governor Kathy Hochul. Everyone wants to leave home, and everyone wants to go home. But the trains stopped running at noon. The airport runways are puddled with water. There's no going now. What is this anyway, all this coming and going? Why not stay Rapunzel in your high tower? Unpuzzle the meaning of things. And why you are and why you are here while you are here in the soggy earth to live out lifetimes of wanting to stay and wanting always to go. The rain keeps falling and falling. One day the stratosphere stratosphere will turn upside down. Rainfall will stream upwards pouring into the porous vessel of sky, sticky drips over star constellations, coating planets in a slippery mess. Time they had a good house cleaning, if you ask me. <laughs> That's great. Once in a century Thank rainstorm you. happens every three weeks. Thanks for sharing that, Lisa. And I got to say, I'm, Thank you. I'm jealous reading that poem because <laughs> of the uh, rain yeah i i haven't seen rain i don't think in uh since may maybe <laughs> yeah i'm starting to doubt its existence yeah personally. i think i'm like a, a rain like anti-magnet because i keep coming to texas it doesn't rain doesn't here rain. doesn't rain in california then i leave california and it's pouring in california but i haven't seen it so it's rumored oh see so you have rain envy I do. I really do. A good rainstorm with some thunder and lightning. We'll, just, uh, we'll read Lisa's poem over and over again, and it'll come down here. <laughs> That's a good idea. Okay. Sure. Range. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, right. Lisa. Bye Take bye. care. Bye. Yeah, it was Lisa Seidenberg with a Once in a Century Rainstorm. Happens every three weeks. Um, next, let's have, let's go to uh, Jayanthi Rangan. Hi, Jayanthi. Good to see you. Hi, Tim. Hi, Katie. Hi. Hi. So um, what do you have for us today? Uh, this is a prompt poem called uh, Library Card. A blue plastic rectangle from Robbins Library in Arlington that I often forgot to take with me and haggled with the circulation desk. Let me give you my card number. Will that do? 
At times, I showed my driver's license instead. Why I had to pay fines for unseen videos that I returned late was hard to understand. All said, the library, the card had emotional tugs for me. It let me pick a free paperback for my newborn. I used microfish uh, collection and borrowed knitting needles, wall art, classroom kits, and toys, museum passes, camera, bread maker, and things. After my move to a new town, I got a new tag. This mini one fit on my keychain. I used it more than my credit card. As a senior, it allowed me more time to get through a book, provided reading glasses of varied power for those who waltzed in without, without them. All these littlest things were toasty gloves on Boston's frigid steering. Oh, I love that ending, especially. It was library card, a kind of ode to the library card. Great use of that uh, prompt, Janthi. That was wonderful. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Janthi Rangan with library card. Next, we have uh, Mike Bales. Um, while we're getting into detail in these poems, I got to say my favorite poem out of that book, Car Wash, is the Burning Garbage poem. Yeah, that's my favorite poem, too. So much, uh -huh. so much about family life in that poem. So much about his dad. <clears throat> I sent it to you. Um, this is kind of an autobiographical thing about me that I haven't talked about. Mm -hmm. For a long time, I felt I was kind of a phone person. Like the best volunteer work I did um, in college was working for different hotlines and crisis lines. I once had friends who I rarely saw in person, but we'd have deep conversations over the phone. Oh, that's really interesting, just, yeah. They're just different ways the phone evolved in my life. My poem's called Phone. <clears throat> this is also aging me some. Uh, <laughs> phone. Rotary, the turn of the dial, plans made in haze. I ran to meet my, my friends. Touch tone, if I press the right keys, a song composed. College, fraternity brothers at the end of the hall made calls for dates. Hotline. I listened for things and said, hitting in inflections. A lifeline when he called my father and friends, moments of desperation. Call center, scripted conversations, what was done and said, measured and scored. My work as a flagger, the office called me to go to new places, flights of fan uh, fancy. And the cell at home, Texan and haste. Taste shown in a blank face, but the world rests in my hand. Very cool, Mike. That was a really interesting form. That was Phone uh, by Mike Bales. And, and I like it's a, it's a haiku-like four-line stanza series. It's really interesting. And, uh, you know, be prepared because that might fit for next week's prompt. Yeah, that's might. <laughs> um, so, I'm ahead of my times, right? Yeah, um, you definitely are. <laughs> um, yeah, I stick. I stuck to the form. I figured I kind of had to, to be consistent. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. Well, I like it. Thanks. Thanks for sharing yeah. that, Mike. Okay, thanks. Yeah, it was Mike Bales with Phone. I think that's what he called it, right? Phone. Yeah, Phone yeah. Phone 4, maybe. Okay. Now, uh, Mary Lisa Dinominicius is next. Now I'll unmute. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, great to see you. Thanks for joining again. Hi, Hi Katie. Hi. Hi, Tim. Um, yeah, it's good to see you guys again, too. Um, I missed last week. Uh, so, and, and I didn't finish... This week's prompt, I got halfway through, and I wasn't happy with the ending. So I'm hoping to read um, my Halibin, Halibin from last week. Uh-huh. That's- yeah, sounds good. No more tears. I have it up. Go ahead whenever you're ready. And okay. I guess you remind everybody last week's prompt was to write a Halibin. That mentions time. That mentioned time. That's yeah. right. Okay, mm-hmm. good thing we have the uh, prompt <laughs> generator here next to me to recall that. Okay, let's hear it. Okay, no more tears. I try to remember my mother's touch. She brushes my hair, but she's in a mood, so pulls extra hard as she braids, yanking on the strands closest to the scalp. I try to remember something better. I'm seven. My mother's hands are covered with an orangey goop. She rubs hastily on my legs for my ballet recital, complaining the entire time about the required leg makeup, leg makeup and insisting we should be allowed to wear pantyhose. The friction between her hand and my legs hurts. She's frowning. She's rubbing too hard. I try not to cry. I'm not allowed to cry or wince. I try to remember something better. I'm six. My mother rinses my hair in the bathtub. She's calm, doesn't want me to be afraid of the faucet water about to come down onto my head. She's discovered no more tears, a new spray that helps to detangle children's hair. This makes her happy. I never know when she's going to be happy or angry. It's not that I'm not paying attention. Believe me, she makes sure I do. But she's unpredictable, and I'm learning to put space in between us. I turn toward other people for advice, and she feels the distance. I try to remember if I ever sat on her lap. In the drawer where I keep family photo albums, I page through searching for just one picture of us touching. I can't find one. I can't find one of my sister or my brother sitting on her lap or anywhere close to her either. I can't find any pictures of her touching anyone except my father, whom she adored. So much so, she said to me once, when I got pregnant with you, it was an accident. And I asked God, why did you do this to me? But she said, I got your father. So it was worth it after all. There's one photo. I'm a newborn. I'm wrapped in a white blanket, and she holds me in her arms while sitting next to my father. But I don't remember what that felt like to just sit and be held. Rage ripening, a pit in my gut, her bitter fruit. Uh, great use of the hyphen form, that haiku at the end, and then the, uh, the, the journalistic prose, No More Tears by Mary Lisa D. Dominicious. Thanks so much for sharing that, Mary Lisa. That's great. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening. Yep. Take care. Bye. Bye. And uh, that's going to be it, I think, for the open lines. Let me do one last double check. I do believe we got to everybody, which is wonderful. Thanks, everybody, for being quick on the uh, quick on the draw, quick with the poems, too, uh, because we got through a good number of them today. Now, we'll really quickly do the, uh, the uh, haiku, the saiku. And uh, the saiku for this week, if I can dig it up, is right here. It's based on this article 
which I thought was really interesting. This was uh, strength is in this glass's DNA. So let's take a look at this. Strength is in this glass's DNA. And what these scientists did at, uh, at the uh, Brookhaven National Laboratory is they basically they took strands of DNA and made like this lattice with it. Um, and then they coated that with glass and they made this super strong, super light material with those two ingredients. And it's just amazing what you can do, but amazing too that biology has these uh, material sciences uses too. And like we can't really compete with DNA for when it comes to making something that, that has those that strength and that, uh, you know, because those bonds are strong in the double helix. So uh, strength is in the glass is DNA. And what they did too is they they built the DNA together into these like shapes that were all the same and then and then folded them together in this lattice, which they called like origami, which I thought was really interesting. And so here's a quick mono coup based on this. And that is right here. Compressed origami bed sheets. There you go. Compressed origami bed sheets. That is this week's Saiku. And that is the uh, show for everybody. Now, the uh, prompt for next week is going to be this. Do you want to say it, Katie? Sure. Since it is right in front of me on the screen, <laughs> I'll say it. Write a poem set in the first place you ever worked. So, of course, this is inspired by At the Car Wash. Yeah, definitely. The first place you ever worked. And I wonder how many people are going to be working in, like, fast food. Because that yeah. kind of, I mean, I don't know. I worked for at fast in a fast food place for a week. Does that count, I think? I and think then I got a better, I got, then I got the grocery store upgrade. And so we like it to be stretched, too. It doesn't have to be when you work there. But you can go back and visit there. You can visit it in the future. You can really have fun with it. I like it when the prompt is stretched. It's what I do when I write my own prompts, too, a lot of times. So. Yeah, very good. And and two, uh, you know, try to include as many details as you can, because as we saw through Arthur's stuff, details are really central to making a great poem. So, yes, it should be a good prompt and uh, a lot of fun to do. That is next week's prompt. Write a poem set in the first place you ever worked. And next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be none other than Jane Hirschfield. Now, Jane Hirschfield is one of my favorite poets when I was first introduced to poetry. Her book, uh, Nine Gates, is a book of essays. It's like the best, one of the best books of essays uh, on poetry I've ever read. Um, she has a new book that's really the most beautiful book of poetry I've ever seen put together as a physical object, I think. It's a hardcover, really thick and beautiful, that is a uh, new and selected poems, The Asking. Uh, by Jane Hirschfield. Uh, so you should be the guest next week. I'm really looking forward to this one. Uh, that's going to be Rattlecast 214. Write a poem and set in the first place you ever worked is the prompt. Um, and Jane Hirschfield will be our guest at the regular time, Monday, October 9th, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week. In the meantime, and I'll talk to you later. Good night.